podcast series will take our listeners through Leisure Network's journey impacting people in our community through programs and services delivered. We will mix our industry knowledge with real stories and real facts that can better inform the community we serve. This podcast contains the thoughts and opinions of our presenters and isn't necessarily represented across the whole organisation. Welcome everyone to episode one of the Leisure Networks podcast. Really exciting to have you listening to us today and a great opportunity to talk about community sport and the challenging times that are facing everyone at the moment. I'm Tim Downs and I'm your co-host today and alongside me is my colleague Michael King. Welcome Michael. Thank you Tim, super excited to uh, sit across the, uh, the chair from you today and and talk all things sport and, and community and the impacts and um, what a better place to do it from uh, the studio here and representing the great Leisure Networks. Excellent. It's great to have you here today, Michael. And over the course of the podcast and, and the journey, we certainly will talk a lot about community sport. We'll have a number of guests involved that will share their opinion and share their side of things as well. And it's really great to have the opportunity just to chat chat about community sport and, and see what everyone is, is up to. But there's certainly a lot taking place in mainstream media at the moment. There's a lot to digest and no doubt it's very difficult for volunteers at clubs to make sure that they're across everything. But there's one particular article that I would like to draw people's attention to. and It's actually a blog that you wrote, Michael, about resetting, rewiring and rebooting. It's a time to reconnect. And this was off the back of the AIS framework for rebooting sport. So, Michael, can you just tell us a little bit more about your blog? Yeah, so, um, you know, everyone's blogging these days at the moment. It was a good chance for Leisure Networks to, to join into the, the party and um, and to give our views. And I guess one thing we like to do and, and blog about is things that are factual and, and base our opinion off the information and the resources that we're seeing out there. And there's been lots of good stuff that's been written and it was just a good chance for us to to talk about the good, the bad, the ugly, but also how we actually need to now reconnect and um, the issues that clubs are having, the issues that local government are having, issues that sport are having. And a lot of us talk about volunteers, but you know we like to bash local government a lot of the time. And, and to be honest, at the moment, state sporting and national sports are, are really struggling resource-wise. So a lot of pressure is going on local government and I think they're doing a fantastic job. So it was a great chance to to really give my opinion based off a lot of conversations and a lot of resources that are out there and um, and hopefully um, for the readers, give them something that they can actually use, um, tangible that they can use within their club or whatever setting they're involved in. So, um, yeah, it was good to get out, that out there and get lots of feedback. As we all know, podcasts and, and blogs get a lot of feedback and um, hopefully we'll continue that, uh, that phase with a, a blog number two or three. I think you you make a really good point there about sporting bodies, national, state, local government, tr- are trying to do the best that they can. And I think sporting clubs are exactly the same. There's a lot of times where there's a few rivalries amongst sports and, about, and amongst clubs as well. But I think everyone is really banding together to, to make sure that they're doing the best for the community. And I think that's really pleasing to see. So many times there's a few clubs that might go off on their own tangent and, and that's fine but I think it's really important that everyone is is coming together and, and you make some 
great points there around volunteers, and we'll certainly touch on volunteers and the strain that it's having on on them and and the challenges that are facing clubs at the moment. But that was a great article. I really enjoyed it. So make sure you, you check it out. No doubt there'll be another one coming out very soon. Thanks, mate. Thanks. I really appreciate that. It's just a good chance to yeah put our put our two bobs in and and connect people to the mission and the vision of Leisure Networks and the work that we do and, and let people know that we are a supporting um you know a supporting team out there that really can connect during a really difficult time for lots of people. Um, I guess while we're on that, we you know we talked a bit about in the blog around volunteers and you just mentioned the strain on volunteers and. Um, it's a really interesting topic and it's something that we're discussed and we've read a lot about and um, volunteers are the key to any organisation. Um, we know that within um, sporting circles, the fans own the game and the fans are the ones that make the game and within volunteers, without them, clubs and associations do not run and um, I guess volunteers are, we're volunteer poor. You speak to sporting clubs, they are volunteer poor and at the moment, through COVID-19, we're putting extra stress on volunteers that for the last three months have not done a lot and potentially found other avenues. And when they come back to or sport recommences, we're actually asking them to do a lot more than what they were doing beforehand. We're putting a lot more strain on. And um, I, I do personally um, have the view of uh, sport can come back. Um, we put the strain on volunteers and all of a sudden there's more job roles, more and more job roles. Um, that are on top of the welcoming officer and the safety officer and, and the head of trainers and stuff like that. And I guess there's the view of let's get back to sport, let's put more strain on volunteers, burn them out even more, or is it a good chance to, to put a pause on things, to make some good decisions at high levels and actually give volunteers a chance to breathe, reconnect, re-energise and actually build a good recruitment and almost like a... Um, retention strategy around volunteers moving into potentially the 2021 um, season. So that's sort of where I'm sitting um, at the moment. Um, what, are you, what are your thoughts around that? I think it's really interesting when it comes to, to volunteers because there's so many clubs out there at the moment that might have a challenging time just to find volunteers to fill the positions on their committee. And then obviously on, on top of that, having a number of COVID safety officers as well, just in case someone is away or, or, or someone's sick. So there certainly is a, a great Australian. There's more red tape or more protocols, checklists that volunteers and committee members will need to tick off. One thing I, I do want to raise, and I really want to, I'm really interested in getting your opinion on this, Michael, is if clubs have the capacity, do they start employing paid administrators? to make it a little bit easier on volunteers. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Because I think it's a, a great opportunity if, if clubs are financially viable to be able to do it. Obviously, there might be a few that might struggle. But is it time if clubs don't already? Yeah, well, it's a really it's a really good point. And, uh, and people might be listening and thinking, geez, sport's not operating. The income loss for our club at the moment is, is tough. It's hard to be discussing uh, paid volunteer roles. But I do know across... Um, our local region and across the state and metropolitan Melbourne, there are a number of clubs that have paid uh, administrators. Um, and we've had the discussion even today that we're putting stresses on volunteers to make calls that if, if there are outbreaks, it then becomes on the volunteer capacity and their experience as volunteer volunteers. Whereas um, schools have paid, paid staff that are, that are managing these, these items. So, you know, if you've got a paid administrator role, there's an opportunity to have someone at a... Um, 
at an industry level or an experience that actually can provide the protocols and can manage the logistics around a club and, and ensure that it might be a cost to the club, but they'll come out of it in a much better way, potentially with sponsorship protocols, um, regulations, processes, uh, policies, those sort of things. So I definitely think it's the way of the future. And, and let's be honest, we're adding more and more strain on volunteers. Um, it may create a really good way to recruit volunteers, to build strategies around volunteers. And, and it, in, as a result, it may, actually, um, it may actually bring more income to clubs. And I know sport is around participation, but I know business is around income and, and sporting clubs are businesses these days. So that's potentially how they need to look at it. And I think given that, a number of sports, number of state sporting bodies, their resources are, are limited or they've become less over the period of, of this time with staff members being being stood down and, and fingers crossed that those staff members do return to um, the full-time hours that they were on previously. But there's going to be less support potentially going forward. So where does the club get that support to perform all those, all those roles, all those activities, fill out all, all the paperwork, where does it come from and, and potentially there is scope for a, a paid administrator to, to be involved yep. in that. So it's certainly an interesting time for, for clubs and it might be a, a path that a number of people go down. But one thing that also I'd like to, to talk about is community sport and what is it all about? Where does it fit in society? Because we've noticed that without sport there potentially isn't that same social connectedness. If if you're not on Zoom, if you're not on social media platforms that you're able to, to catch up with, with your friends, your teammates, your other committee members. And there's an article that was published by Rochelle Lyme, who uh, is a, a researcher at uh, Fed Uni and Vic Uni, and it was about sport withdrawals prove its value to society, which I, I think really hit the nail on the head. Yeah, we can go back to training in groups of 10, we can go back, we can catch up via social media platforms and means. But being able to go and play for your team, having spectators, having coaches there, having parents, grandparents, family and friends really goes to show the impact that community sport does have on on the community. And and it's a big one and and we've certainly seen what's going on at the moment so much harder to to connect with with people and, and be physically active it's um it's a really good point it's a great article and we've discussed it at length and Rochelle provides lots of great articles that are always backed by um, data and research and that's what I love about that and it's probably two aspects there for me um the definition of community sport so you've got the word sport and that's participation and you've got the word community you can't have you can't have a word community sport um used if, if community is not a part of it. And, and community for people is a chance to bring people together, to engage with um, people you don't, you don't spend much time with. It's a chance to socialise. It's a chance for mum and dad that have a struggle during the week looking after the kids to actually vent and have chats with other families. Um, it's where we spend our Saturdays. We walk up from our house to our local Oval and we, we have our $10 for some chips and a, and a can of Coke and, and that's our day and that's where our day is spent. That's where a lot of our time spent. That's where we create our strongest relationships and Regardless of um, organisations and work, a lot of our values and a lot of our um, interests are all formed from the experiences we have within community sports. So I think that's one aspect there. And the second one is in the article um, is participation versus premierships. And um, 
Rochelle um, talks around. Uh, okay, so we're all we're all in it to win. So we're going to all come back from this, and and we're going to drive to our game. We're going to play, get back in the car, and go home with no connection at all. All because we want to win a premiership. So you know we're taking out the element of premiership, um, and let's bring it back to what real community sport is about and that isn't about engagement about spending time together and it's almost yin yin versus yang in a way what percentage do you leverage um sport versus community is it a 50 50 split do people play sport to get connected to community or do people go to a club to have community and sports the the indirect benefit from there so that's probably where i stand on that yeah i think you um make a really good point there about participation and and premiership and a lot of people say, is there an asterisk next to the, the teams that win a, a premiership this year? But I think it's great that we can have success in, in victory or whatever it might be. But I think community sport, going back to potentially why we first started out as kids, went there to to participate in sport, to, to make friends and, and enjoy what we were doing, win, lose or, or draw. So... If we're able to get back to, to sport in, in some way, let's have a red hot crack and, and have a bit of fun while we're at it too. Um, I guess it sort of takes us into the, the toolkits that are that have been released, Tim, and I know that um over the last couple of weeks the AIS have, have released their framework and their and their toolkit return to play and as a result of that the state sporting and national bodies have released their own version of that toolkit that relates specifically to their to their club and I think it's been a, a really good win for community sport um, to see that at a national and state level that the toolkits have been formed specific to the you know, the discipline of the sport. And um, there's a lot that gets taken at a state level that then gets converted down to the club level. So I guess um, it's just a real awareness out for people out there that there is a, co- a toolkit that's been formed. Um, it had a lot of people involved in that actually specifies um, sport by sport what that looks like and each club will interpret that differently. But um, it's a good investment from um, you know Australian sport that does come across to each state and each level, so it's a toolkit that um, that values all different areas in regards to social distancing, hygiene, um, what return to um, training looks like, training guidelines, um, and then the next level for that will obviously be game day experience and, and and competition in itself. So I think it's a good awareness, and I think um, clubs really need to ensure that they're um, looking and reading these resources before they make their judgment calls. Their judgment calls need to be made off processes and, and and bits of information that have been developed from the experts in the field um, and adapted from there. So it sort of takes out that that individual um, approach from a club and makes it more holistic. So I think that's quite important. And I think good on the state sporting bodies for this. Uh, the toolkits and, and the return to training, return to play when they come out as well, they've been really clear and they've been really easy to follow. Able to, to read each of the, the dot points, make sure that you... You tick it off and you're able to, to meet the guidelines required. And I think that's a really big tick for, for national bodies, for, for state bodies, that those guidelines and, and checklists, they've been pretty good. Yeah. There hasn't been too much um, grey area. People know exactly, clubs know exactly what they need to do and they're able to tick it off. So that's been, that's been great from, from a national and, and state perspective. Um, I guess when we're, when we're sort of, you know, we're talking about the, the toolkits and, and community sport and... I guess one thing that's worth discussing is sort of the the big challenge that's facing clubs at the moment, and I think um, there's a couple of different aspects there. When you when you talk about clubs, you're talking about um, junior participation and senior participation, and where that all sits. And I guess across senior competitions and, and participation, it's around getting seasons up and 
what cost that might have to a club. So we're talking around cost and not participation. But then when we get down to junior juniors, it's about participation. It's about getting people back to what they love and giving them an, an aspect and a taste of what will bring them back next season. And, and potentially for clubs that have paid memberships, it gives them a bit of value for money in a way. So rather than donating your membership to the club for the year, we actually might provide you a, a small season to, to get back. So I guess when it comes to the biggest challenges for clubs at the moment, every day is Every day is different. There's always different announcements, changing landscape. Um, clubs are doing things differently. They're waiting for advice from associations and from state levels. Associations and state levels are down on resources at the moment, so the leadership potentially isn't quite there. And this is across all sport, not just footy, netball, basketball, those sort of things. Um, that's, the real, that's the real tough thing. And I guess when we're talking about challenges, there's the financial, the sponsorship, participation, recruitment, retention of people on and off the field. But then I look at it from a bit of a, a left field and I think about um, recruitment and retention and I think about conversations we've had with clubs that have been involved in high-impact sports and the option to potentially move to low-impact in, low sports that are coming back to play a lot quicker, um, a lot less risk. Um, they're a lot more supported and potentially their sport is a lot more prepared. So I think there's a real risk for sport um, that jumps into things too quickly, but also sports and clubs that really do delay their tactics and their recruitment engagement with members. Because the way I look at it is if a club or association or sports is doing it really well, I want to be involved. That's where I want to be. I want to give myself every aspect and every chance to do that. And that's whether I'm a player, coach, parent, or you know, or a participant myself. That's sort of where I sit there. What about you, Tim? I think probably maybe one a, a little bit left field is – Maybe one of the biggest challenges facing clubs is they don't want to be the first club in their region to have a COVID outbreak. And then that goes back to potentially whether or not they would like to start training and go back and, and returning of play. So I think that's a big one and, and it's certainly a, a big risk as well given that there's currently no vaccine even though there's a, a few trials taking place but clubs don't want to be the first. They don't want to have their name on the front page of the local paper, da-da-da, is, has an outbreak. Yeah. That, that's a big big challenge and a big issue that a lot of clubs are, are probably thinking about and, and trying to uh, get their hand around as well. But I think I concur with you in regards to membership and retaining members. Uh, I think those sports that participate in summer have a greater chance of generating membership than potentially those in, in the winter season. They're, they're set up, they're potentially ready to go, and those that might have missed out on playing in their chosen sport over the course of, of the winter season might then pick up that sport in summer. So I think there's a really... even that It's a challenge for those in winter, but there's a great opportunity for those sports in summer to be able to retain members, but also add new members to their sport as well. I think you, mate, you make a great point, and I think it's around the time is now for, for a lot, and, and we're not discounting winter sport and what that means, and um, you need to give every sport an opportunity to get themselves up to be viable and to be sustainable long-term, um, but there are also times where you need to make the call and you need to make decisions and, and in the best interest of health and safety and not around winning and losing and, and finance. And I think um, it is time right now for summer sports to jump on board and jump on the train and make some really critical marketing 
uh, you know, materials that promote their sport and promote the opportunity. And that is not just through mainstream um, programs, it's through modified opportunities. So what a great time to bring people back that if winter sport doesn't get up or people aren't participating or active, what a great time now if at a cricket club to promote old boys or you know senior people that have been at home every Saturday that might normally spend the day at the football or netball to come and be a part of your senior cricket team. What a great chance to bring back the social element of sport for summer and what a great chance to provide new experiences for people, both senior and at a, at a junior level. I think that's that's sort of where I think the opportunity lays. And I guess back to your, your point before around the, the outbreak side of things, we know that in New South Wales, two schools have shut down because kids have contracted the virus. Those kids are probably connected to local sporting clubs. Um, those sporting clubs potentially are back training already. I know that they are back in New South Wales and Queensland back training. And um, are those clubs reflecting on their experience? Was there social distancing? Was there tackling that was involved? Um, were the drink bottles you know, away from well-maintained? Was the safety or COVID officer abiding by all the processes? And these are volunteers that potentially are going to be brought into the media um, limelight for the wrong reasons. So completely understand why clubs are very conservative in their approach around that. But I also I also give gratitude to clubs or associations that have made the call as well and allowed people to, to work out where their lifestyle sits over the next few months. Now, I'm going to throw something just a little bit uh, left of field here for you, Michael. Hypothetical scenario. If you were a president of a local club right now, would you return to training as the current guidelines are at the moment? Um, no, I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't. Um, I know locally and metropolitan-wise, there's a lot of clubs that have and a lot of clubs that haven't, and um, there's two trains of thought here. So you return back to train to give people an opportunity to be active, socialise, mental health, mental well-being. There's the element within that around let's get ahead of the game, let's get some Ks in the legs, let's get ahead of the game. Um, probably the stance that I take is I know locally there's some clubs that have said we will not commence training until the guidelines and the state government have made their decision and that's both at an association level and a state level and and that is let's wait and see if we are going to play or are we just going to train until we're told we're not playing and then pull up the stumps then. What, what is the impact of training now and then being told in two weeks' time you're not playing? What happens then? What do clubs do? So I'm of the opinion of let's wait for all the right information and if that means the information's provided and we have three weeks to get ready for round one, that's when I'm making the call to bring everyone back to training and turn the experience into a social and a participation experience where the players may not be fit, all right, but let's, in, let's ensure that we put our players first, the health and well-being of the club and the sustainability. And I think um, what it does do it, it is it eliminates all grey area and you get, the, you get the right information, which is what we've been following as a nation and across the country um, and internationally for months. So I feel like let's wait for all the information and are we going ahead? And then if we are, let's bring them back. And if we're not, then we can come up with some sort of other idea or concept about a social program or a lightning carnival type program. So I, um, I do support clubs that are back already, but also support clubs that are actually going to wait and make the decision and to continually engage with their members through online platforms. What about you? How do you? Where do you fit there? I can certainly see where you're coming from, and I know the reasoning why some clubs would hold off um, in training in in groups of ten. But if you can, go for it. 
great opportunity to socially connect face to face, have a, have a run around with your teammates, even if it might be a senior perspective, junior perspective, or whatever it might be. If you have everything in place, and I'll make that clear, if you've got everything in place to be able to return to training, why not? On that, on that point, I think it's really a really good topic of debate. Do you not think that people are already organising their own groups at the park, groups of eight or nine in the Colts team? Let's get a couple of footies, go down to Queen's Park and, and have a kick, have, have our own little modified training session. If you're committed to playing, do you think people are they're probably already doing that, aren't they? They certainly are. And I've no doubt there's some groups out there that are that are training in their in their groups of ten. But to have something structured that the coach puts in place, and they might already be doing this in the in the groups of ten in their own accord. But to get down to the club just because the rooms aren't open, you've still got that sense of the environment that you you're playing at. You potentially might cross over week to week with others that you might not be be training with. Um, you're catching up with people that you might not normally catch up with. Yes, they might still be doing that, but I don't know. There's just something about getting down to the club, onto the onto the park, onto the court, whatever surface it is, and training and going for it because clubs are going to have to. I believe clubs are going to have to have all these. Steps in place anyway. Let's get it done now. Get out to train. Yeah, let's do it. Real good. Yeah, good. That was good. Get out. Get out of the house. I know that they might be already. Get you out of the house. Get you away from the screens, which potentially people are having plenty of time on anyway. And do it. So on that, on that, um, fulfilling team commitments and around fulfilling, um, putting a team into a, into a competition. If we take my approach as a president of waiting, am I potentially coming back to training three weeks after everyone else and then finding out that people don't want to play and then trying to work at a team, whereas your approach of let's get it organised now, at least I've get, you're getting an interest of how many are going to play, how many teams are we going to have at a junior level, um, let's make those phone calls, whereas the, the delayed approach potentially, all right, we're back at training. Let's see 400 people because we've got 400 members. Let's see them all back at training and hope we've still got 12 teams. So I guess it's sort of, there's a bit of, there's a bit, a bit of both there, I think. And yeah. what, are your, what are your thoughts? There, there is. And obviously there's going to be, given that it's only groups of 10 and trying to find the, the space on your, your playing arena is certainly going to be tough and trying to find the, the coaches and the volunteers to be able to run those sessions is certainly hard. But if you're able to get on the, front foot I think there's potential that you might be able to attract a few new players a few new members to your club given that the society that we live in at the moment everyone wants things now we've probably got a little bit better at being patient and and waiting during this time but want things now so if I have the opportunity to train with teammates and get out there I'm going to take it and the during this time, the gap might widen between some clubs. Those that are proactive and got everything in, in place and things are, are set up might attract a few more members. Those that might wait, 
and might not have too many things in place, they might start to, to lose members. So the gap might widen between a few clubs across a, a number of different codes, what depending you, on what stance you make. I guess, what are you on that as well? Like, so talking about, you know, potential doing things well, doing things the right way, being prepared, and as a result, maybe picking up members. I don't know where I sit around picking up new members. And I guess to pick up new members, someone else is losing members, really, aren't they? Whether it's cross-code or within code. And I guess is is this pandemic and is the crisis of the community, sport and the world, is it the right time to be trying to recruit new people to your club or your sport? Or is it the best interest of all of us to support the people and give back and invest in what we have right now? It's certainly an interesting point. And I think during this time, there's greater chance for those that have links to their local club to return. So those that might not have been around the club for three or four years might see this as a really good opportunity to, to go back. For those that potentially don't have uh, a special affiliation with a, a club, they might go from, from one to the next. They're probably just going to go anyway. And I think that that happens over the course of the season. Whether or not it's it's during COVID or not, there's going to be people that go from one one club to the to another. Um, and I think if you can get members, if you can get people engaging with the content that you're doing, engaging with the training or whatever it might be, I think you you have to take the opportunity that's in front of you. Uh, yeah, that's just my thought on it. Given any circumstances, you're always going to try and attract new members, whatever may occur. At the so end, got I guess at the end of the day, it's a competitive environment, no matter where you are. So sport is business. Like That's the way I look at it these days. Sport is business. And the way that sports are run, they turn over a lot of money, they recruit the right ways, they have a lot of high-profile people in their committees and their execs. And um, it is a competitive... We play sport to compete, so we want to win. And sometimes it's the win at all costs, you know, referring to the Michael Jordan documentary, it's win at all costs sort of mentality in a way, isn't it? So um, the clubs that, are, that, that might be battling membership-wise and potentially don't have a strong leadership at this time may find themselves the gap widening, like you're saying. They may find themselves losing good people and they may move to those clubs that are engaging, that are committing, that they're hearing good stories from, really good reviews from people that are saying, yeah, we're seeing a lot on our social media or we're not getting much. We're not seeing much. So when are you guys starting to train? Well, we're back next week. Oh, we haven't even we haven't even heard from our club yet. So it's an interesting time, and what it does do is a chance to reflect, clubs to reflect, and for leaders to really stand up. And good leaders empower people. Good leaders stand up in front and lead from the front, and and good leaders listen to their membership as well. And I think clubs that are volu- that are surveying the members at the moment. Good, good committees and good leaders are listening to their members and what their members want and, and putting things in place to best support them. So it's a, it's a really interesting one. There's lots of opinions, particularly around that space. And I, I think um, when we're talking about uh, fielding teams and we're saying that the, the difficult side is retainment and potentially gap widening, it actually, I'm thinking about, you know, my experience as a footballer and I hated pre-season, hated running. I hated anything before Christmas, even as a coach, hated two, four weeks before training, saying, kids, come along, let's see who's around. Um, like to jump in, you know, maybe a month before, get the, get the 
get the uh, the fitness where it needs to be, jump into the season. Because come come June, if I'd all, if I'd done a preseason, I'd be burnt out, I'd be cooked mentally and physically. Want to try and get right through to the end, right through to when footy really matters. And I think um, now's an opportunity to really potentially capitalise on that. If sport comes back and it's a shortened season and we get eight weeks instead of 18 weeks, potentially a great time for people that have not been involved for a while, that aren't involved, to come back and say, hey, you know what? There ain't no pre-season. I come back in two weeks and I get, I get eight weeks of netball or basketball or, or soccer. What a great experience for me. And as a result, potentially an ongoing member or player or coach or volunteer for the club. So, you know, in, with every difficult situation, there's always a positive. Yes, certainly, and I know we touched on earlier about volunteers and and the strain that it's having on them, but it also can, it potentially might go twofold. So, if you've got a shortened season, whatever sport you have, people see the opportunity that oh, I might be able to commit for six to eight weeks as a team manager and assistant coach or whatever role that that needs to be filled. So people might actually start putting putting their hand up because. I think there needs to be a succession plan in place, talked about before, for, for volunteers. And potentially these people might come through the door and, hey, I actually enjoyed that for six to eight weeks. Certainly it's going to be more if, if it's a normal season. But, hey, I'm willing to give it a go. Club is in desperate times. They need more support. So I'm going to go for it. So it, it certainly is a an interesting time for for a lot of clubs out there and, and how they're going to survive. And I guess on that as well, um, there's there's an opportunity. And I think within committees, we hear it all the time, Tim, don't we? We speak to committees. They're burnt out. They're tired. Um, they're usually from an older generation a lot of the time without, you know, without generalising. Um, people that have time to give back to clubs. So whilst we're talking around potential burnout of committee members, volunteers, leaders, it may create opportunities for... New, the new generation to come through in leadership positions and particularly committees. So we talk about getting rid of the dead wood and sometimes change puts pressure on people and people don't like change. And as a result, they, they push against it or they leave. Well, we might lose some people, but as a result, we might get some really good, good ideas and good innovation that comes into our club, into our committee, um, into our membership and what we do. And, and potentially this pandemic may create an opportunity to do that. And I believe... I believe that clubs that innovate and clubs that think and clubs that put succession plannings in place, they're doing this stuff. But we all, we all need to be doing it. We all need to be thinking about it and we all need to be doing it. We need to be learning and stealing ideas from the best. We certainly do. And one final one for you, Michael. Is it worth having a 2020 season? What are your thoughts? Uh, I, my, my honest thoughts are to um, make a decision to stop, I would say, to stop all senior competitions um, right here, right now, winter seasons. A lot of sports do have summer seasons and netball, I know, have a summer season, not just a winter season. Um, I think make decision on senior football, let the, desk, the, 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 the dust settle a little bit and put together a small-sided lightning carnival um, transition sort of junior participation program. Um, so I'm on the fence there. I would say senior competitions finish up, talk about strategies and strategizing for next year and how that looks, putting policies in place, making sure our websites and our, our guidelines are up to date. And I would say invest in the junior side of 
associations and clubs. And the reason why I say that is um, the future of clubs is within junior systems. It's not within senior systems. The seniors, senior teams, they socialise, they bring income in, they win premierships, they have great experiences, but there's also downsides to that as well. And, and in an environment where um, people earn lots of money to play sport, which is quite ridiculous, um, there's a lot of downside to that. So I think if we invest in... If we let the desk settle, uh, settle, sorry, and if we invest in a junior type small sided um, competition that has adequate insurance through an association run competition, not club run competition, association run where the insurance is covered, um, if things stay the way they are with the COVID and there's no spike, I think it would be safe to have you know a six to eight week junior participation program because they're the ones where you get your membership from they're the ones that bring the families to the football they're the ones that are the future of sport and they're the ones that are easily easily drop in and out of sport we know that the 12 to 17 year old age group is a critical one for women in regards to leaving sport so let's look at let's look at the paradigm and look at where those dropout areas are and let's invest in what we need for sport in 10 years time not for not for right here right now and i agree with you on the junior side of things. I think it's really important to have something for the junior side of sport because potentially they've missed a six months, 12 months of, of their learning and development and skill acquisition. But if you can have a senior competition in the sport, I think you, you can go for it. Now, obviously, those that have a little bit more contact, it might be harder to get a, season, a senior season up and running. But if governing bodies have the opportunity to run a season, I think they would be silly not to. Yeah, you might have, crowd, might have crowds, you might not have crowds, but I think it's really important that the show goes on. There's, still, there's going to be so many hurdles that will be put in place, whether or not it's COVID or, or it's something else, but I think it's really important that sport continues some capacity and I really hope that that is a season for clubs and, and for sports because I, I think that's really important and, and the benefit of, of community sport and being physically active and obviously all the stats around obesity and, and stuff around mental health and, and social connectedness. I think junior participation, yes, de- certainly, and I think if a sport can have a senior season that they go for it as well. And I think on that, I think you, you make you make a good point, and I'm probably specifying to a, a number of codes, uh, in my opinion, about that. And I guess what it comes down to is sports that have less contact, less people on the field, create more opportunity to come back to play. Sports that have more people on the field, more contact, less opportunity back to play. So I think there's there's definitely an argument both sides in, in a lot of areas. And I think code versus code, and we see at NRL level, they made a call. What Six weeks before the AFL, they just went all in. They took the risk and went all in. Everyone's going, oh, Jesus, this could fall on its on its head. AFL sat back and waited. They waited and waited and waited um, till the coast was clear. But also, what, they're a month behind the NRL. TV ratings, participation, who knows? Some people from AFL systems might jump to the NRL because they're watching it on TV. So um, I definitely see the, the side to that. The, the big point I just want to emphasise is Juniors are the future of our club across sport, across you know our industry levels, across health, uh, you know obesity epidemics, um, health guidelines across the nation, and, and that's where the investment needs to be. And I think clubs need to put their junior hat on and actually finally invest in junior participation and actually park 
senior participation. And and if senior sport gets up, it's the byproduct. It's it's part two. It's not the focus. And that's a I think a really good point to finish on because there's it's going to be so contentious whether or not there's a 2020 season or, or there's not. And there's no doubt there's going to be plenty of opinions out there in the community about whether or not sport should continue, particularly maybe winter sport. And hopefully we, we're at that stage where summer sport is just able to, to kick off um, as it potentially normally would. But I think that's episode one done. We've had a, had a great chat, Michael and I, and, and no doubt we've raised a few things and no doubt a few people are going to agree or disagree with our stances on, on a certain number of things. But at this time, when it comes to community sport, being able to be connected has such a empowering impact on people. Sport and rec plays a huge role in people's lives and their community. So a lot of the stuff that we've spoken about today in the podcast, there's opportunities to follow up. So if you head to the Club Help website, which has the return to training, return to play toolkits and a whole range of, of resources that will certainly assist clubs. So if you go to clubhelp.org.au, but also if you want to find out a little bit more about Leisure Networks, that would be great as well. Not only are we have a sport rec and health team, but we're a registered disability service provider. So if you want to know more about Leisure Networks, head to leisurenetworks.org. Any final thoughts, Michael? No, I um, I guess uh, interested to hear people's views on, on our podcast. And we're both sat on different sides of the fence. We were very clear that we weren't going to sit in the middle and we were going to sort of debate a few things out. So that was that was really important, I think. Um, you know, hopefully we get a couple of listeners that come back for, uh, for podcast number two and three and all the rest of it. So thank you for listening. Thanks for tuning in to episode one. And hopefully you tune in next time.